The School of Ministry and Leadership is the meeting from Potter's Family Chapel, where we gather week after week to peer into the Word of God to understand whether or not it has anything to say to our way of leading. And time after time, the Word proves that indeed it does. You see, in the beginning, God commanded man and woman, and He blessed them both and commanded them to have dominion over every created thing in the earth, to be fruitful and multiply in ideas and influence, and to cultivate the garden, making sense of the earth around them, subduing and replenishing it for His glory. This is a call to leadership, for us to steward our God-given gifts and talents. We all have the seed of leadership in us, and God wants you to be equipped to lead because this world needs you right now. No matter who you are or where you find yourself, it's my deep prayer that as you listen, meditate, become courageous to act, and go deeper in your walk with God, some of you just at the beginning of that journey, that you will be changed back into the original image and likeness in which you were created. Oh, and don't forget to subscribe and share. God bless you, and God bless your leadership. So we're going to go ahead and continue where we have been in the past month. We still are in our month of stewardship. It's turning out to be a very powerful month because as I keep telling you, stewardship is the crux of leadership. When we lead from a godly perspective, what we are doing is we are exercising our stewardship. We are exercising the dominion that God gave us all the way back in the Garden of Eden. We're taking the giftings and the talents that he has given us. We're taking the purposes and the assignments that he has given us. and We are stewarding them. We are learning how to take care of them, how to invest in them, how to treat them as though they are our own, because we know that we will one day have to give an account for them. So leadership, when we come to understanding what it means to be a leader in Christ, it's always, always, always about leadership, about stewardship, pardon me. And I've been having fun over the past few weeks because I've been telling you that the Bible is full of teachings about stewardship. We've been looking at the Old Testament, we've been looking at the New Testament, and we can see that this issue of stewardship is something that God takes very seriously. And so he's given us a wealth of material to work with. And then when I looked at the calendar, I saw that this month actually has five, five Mondays. And I thought, oh goodness, I hope we're not going to run out of material because Ordinarily, we would have four weeks to treat a topic, but we have five. And so I am super charged with uh, our topic this evening because it has come truly from the throne room of grace. And I believe it will bless you if you open yourselves up to it. Hallelujah. So we're in the New Testament this evening. Last week, we looked at Luke's gospel because in Luke's gospel, Jesus has a lot to say about stewardship. This evening we find ourselves in Matthew's Gospel and I'm going to give you a little bit of background so that we can understand why Matthew is able to record this particular lesson 
if you will, for us, what his context was, who he was as a writer. So that gives us a little bit of insight into the scripture that we will read that will then form the basis of what we want to learn about stewardship this evening. So tonight I'm speaking on the treasure of stewardship, the treasure of stewardship. Let us pray. Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on us one more time. Father, I thank you so much for the School of Ministry and Leadership. I thank you so much for each and every soul who's gathered here. Father, I thank you that you just give us this privilege to show ourselves approved by studying your word. Holy Spirit, I ask you to do a new thing. I ask you, Lord, to reveal unto us the treasures that you have for us this evening. Your word says that if we seek you, we will find you if we search with all our hearts and all our souls. And so tonight, Lord, we bring all of ourselves to you. We don't come for any man. We don't come for anything else, but we come to you this evening. And as we do, Lord, and as we seek you diligently, we know that you are our very great reward. You are our treasure. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would give us the depth of wisdom and hearts of understanding to not only hear this word and to not only meditate on this word, but to actually absorb it into our lives, that this word would take on flesh and become palpable, become real to every aspect of the way that we live, the way that we lead, and even the way that we follow you, Lord Jesus. We thank you in advance for everything that you've already done and that you are about to do. In the mighty name of Jesus, we have prayed and all the saints shall say, Amen. Amen and Amen. So welcome once again to the School of Ministry and Leadership. And God bless you all for being here. So tonight we're looking at Matthew's Gospel. Let me share a little bit with you about who Matthew was. So that we can understand a little bit why he has written this text in the way that he has. So we know that Matthew was also called Levi that Matthew was a Jew, and we know that he was a tax collector. So he was one of those who would have been called the publicans or the sinners, not those who were very well liked in Jerusalem in those days. And Bible scholars tell us that he was most likely from Capernaum. So Matthew is a tax collector from Capernaum, and we know from the scripture that he in fact left everything to follow Jesus. It's recorded in Mark, it's recorded in, in Matthew's own gospel, and it's recorded in the gospel of Luke. And so it's telling that the parable that we are going to look at this evening was only captured by Matthew. Mark didn't capture this parable. Luke, surprisingly, after all of his research, <laughs> did not capture this parable. And so that tells us that this particular parable, this particular word that Jesus spoke, it meant something personal to Matthew, that when he heard it, it ministered to him and he wrote it down in his journal. Or it, it seared itself into his mind and he returned and included it in his, in his account of Jesus's life. We know from the scriptures that once Matthew left everything to follow Jesus, so he was at work that day, he was at his tax collector's booth, 
and Jesus and the other disciples who Jesus has already gathered are with him. And Jesus turns to Matthew and he looks at him and he says, come, follow me. And all three gospels, Mark, Matthew, and Luke say that Matthew left everything and he followed Jesus. But then it tells us that after, after that, after he left the tax collector's booth and he began to follow Jesus, that in fact, Matthew throws Jesus a party. He throws him a dinner party and he invites all of his tax collector friends so that they could also meet Jesus. And we know that the Pharisees were also there. They were hovering around as they always do. And they disapproved. They disapproved and in fact, in some of the Gospels, we have this exchange where the Pharisees turn to the other disciples and they say, why does your master eat with the sinners and the publicans, tax collectors? Why does he eat with these worthless, sinful people? And Jesus turns to the Pharisees and this is where he tells them that they need to go and learn what mercy is. And he quotes the Old Testament. And then he um, says that that. He has come for the sick, not for the well. So this is about as much as we know about Matthew, just his call that he dropped everything, left the tax collector's booth, threw Jesus a party, and then followed Jesus for the rest of Jesus's time on earth. The scriptures aren't really filled with much of what Matthew said or what he did. So we don't know him as well as we know Peter. We don't know him as well as we know John, even Andrew, Philip, Matthew doesn't speak much, but his gospel speaks to us because, because he had this accountant mind, he lays down a very systematic rendering of this story. And Matthew's gospel is beloved because it is seen to be almost as a manual for those who come to know Jesus and come to follow Jesus as Matthew did, his gospel is really an entry-level starter's manual for how to be a disciple of Jesus. It's written very much to teach new believers how to follow Jesus. And Matthew, when he was writing his gospel, he builds on Mark's account. So Matthew writes his gospel much, much later than Peter and, and John Mark's accounts. And so Matthew uses Mark's gospel, but then he builds upon it. He expands upon it. He gives us the lineage of Jesus through Joseph. And Matthew's gospel really paints Jesus as the king of the Jews. So that's why when we read Matthew's gospel, a lot of the time he he describes something and then he says this was to fulfill, so that it was fulfilled. He's writing to the new believers who follow Jesus, who at the beginning would have been predominantly Jews, who would have known the prophets, the law and the prophets, and therefore he wanted to be able to give them a proof that these are the manyfold ways that Jesus actually fulfilled those old scriptures. And so this is important for us to, to understand. Not only is Matthew writing for the new believers who would have initially been Jewish, he's also writing as the 
as the gospel is being spread now to Gentiles, he's also writing for the new believers who would have been coming from other nations, those who had no knowledge of the laws and prophets. And, and so this is why Matthew gives us the Great Commission. Matthew gives us that picture of the resurrected Jesus speaking to his disciples, saying, go out, make ye nations, make disciples of the nations, and lo, I am with you. So if Matthew lays out for us this new believer's manual, this how to be a disciple, how to live in this new kingdom of heaven. In essence, what Matthew lays out for us is he lays out a description of how we are to steward our discipleship. How are we to steward the growth of this kingdom of heaven? And so this is what we want to look at this evening. And the final word just to say on the background is that Matthew lays out his gospel by demonstrating both what Jesus said and what Jesus did. So he lays out for us the word and the deed. So let's look at our scripture this evening. I'm reading from Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 and 45. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Hallelujah. So Matthew gives us in these very brief verses two analogous pictures of the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is a treasure hidden in a field. The kingdom of heaven is a pearl of great value. And the one who has found it does everything to acquire that great treasure. And so it's interesting for us this evening as we are still in our month of stewardship one of the things that I want to point out is that in the past few weeks, all of the examples of the steward, we've taken them from this concept of the steward being a house manager. You recall that a few weeks ago, we defined the Greek word oikonomos, which is the word that gets translated into our English, the word that we use for steward. But the meaning of oikonomos is one who manages a house and is accountable to the owner. And we saw that very much with the, with the parables that we chose over the past few weeks. Well, particularly last week. The week before that, we looked at Solomon. And the week before that, uh, who did we look at? We were still in the Old Testament, but I can't remember. So the point is, is that the, the way that we most commonly have been speaking of stewardship has been through this interpretation of the house manager. But if we have been given this treasure in earthen vessels, and that's what Paul says to us, right? In 2 Corinthians chapter four, he says, but you have this treasure in earthen vessels. Then one of the things that we need to learn how to do is how to treasure this, how to steward this treasure appropriately. 
And so what exactly is this treasure? If we take Paul's text in 2 Corinthians 4, but we work backwards. So I'm in verses 3 to 7, but for the sake of my argument, let me read them backwards. It actually clarifies, it makes it very, very clear what this treasure is. So 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. Verse 6. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Verse 5. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for his sake. Verses 3 and 4. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in who the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine upon them. So what Paul is telling us in this passage is that the treasure we are stewarding, the treasure we are stewarding, is the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. We are stewarding the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. We're stewarding the light that comes from knowing the glory of God. We're stewarding the light of the knowingness of Jesus, the knowingness of Jesus. This is our new treasure. And why is it a new treasure? It's a new treasure because we have an old treasure or we have our starting knowledge. Our starting point is that because of the fall, we know both good and evil. So the knowledge that we have is the knowledge of good and evil. This is our starting point. This is the state that we are born into. And we know that the knowledge of good and evil plunged man into darkness because now man has to toil the cursed ground. And so this life that we live outside of the garden walls is a life where the lights are out, so to speak. We've been separated from the source of light. So our old treasure is the knowledge of good and evil. And in this darkness, this is what the prophet Isaiah prophesies when we turn to Isaiah chapter 8, verse 21. He says, Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged, and looking upward will curse their God, will curse their king and their God. Then they will look towards the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom and they will be thrust into utter darkness. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. And then, of course, 
if you can find yourself in the text, you know that it goes on to say, for unto us a child is born, a son is given. So this is the coming of Jesus who will break this darkness that man has been plunged into because of the fall. So our starting point, our old treasure, is the knowledge of good and evil. And what we read in Isaiah gets corroborated for us in the New Testament. So Isaiah gives us the prophetic vision from the Old Testament, but both John and Paul bear witness to this light. When we start reading John chapter 1, verse 4, John says, In him, speaking of Jesus, was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot comprehend it. And then Paul in Colossians goes on in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, and speaking of Jesus, he says, For he has translated us from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of the Son whom he loves. So I'm spending a little bit of time here just for it to sink into us that the treasure that we start with is the knowledge of good and evil, the knowingness of good and evil. But we have this opportunity to receive this new treasure, which is the knowingness of Jesus, the knowingness of this glory of God that has come into this dark world. But the difference between appreciating the light and appreciating the treasure is that sometimes we take light for granted. We think of light instrumentally. We think of light as something we need. We think of light as something we use. And so it takes on a functional quality. And the power of Matthew's passage here, when he starts speaking about the kingdom of heaven as a treasure, he's letting us know that we steward more than the light. Yes, light is important because light shines into the darkness. Light illuminates. Light allows you to get things done. Light allows you to see. But Matthew, the tax collector, the man whose occupation it was to value the possessions of people, Matthew says, Matthew listens to Jesus when Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure. And so if we are stewards of this treasure that has been placed into these earthen vessels, these vessels of clay that we are, then we steward this treasure. And so this is a deep insight that Matthew, the tax collector, gives us. Matthew, the man who understood the value of possessions, and he was able to leave it all behind in one encounter with Jesus. So if we spend a little bit of time just speaking again about Matthew and the facts that he was a tax collector. Two reasons why the tax collectors were so controversial in Jerusalem in those days. Number one, it's because they were seen as being in collusion with the Roman state. So they were collecting taxes from the people who were predominantly poor, and they were giving those taxes to Caesar. And so they were viewed as enemies of the people. They were despised because they were seen as cooperating with the enemy, the state, the state of Rome. But secondly, tax collectors, because they were agents of this 
system, this governmental system, this corrupt system, they also were corrupted. They were able to enrich themselves. I mean, you remember the story of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was very, very rich because he had been, in addition to taking the taxes, he was always skimming off a little bit for himself. So in this context of where the people were poor and the tax collectors were able to make themselves rich by being agents of the state, it created conflicts morally because the tax collectors were not living according to the Levitical laws of justice and of financing. But it was also religious because the state was a Gentile state. Rome, the Romans were not Jews. And so tax collectors were considered as chief amongst the sinners. So Jesus meets Matthew, this sinner, this publican, this tax collector. And Jesus says, come, follow me. And Matthew gets up and follows. And in this overflow of joy, Matthew is just so excited <laughs> to be amongst Jesus and his disciples that he throws Jesus a party. And so we see in Matthew that it had to be just more than the light. It had to be just more than the light of seeing that Matthew was drawn to. And so we want to understand what was this value? What was this treasure? What was this knowingness of Jesus that Matthew became opened up to? And Paul gives us some hints. Paul gives us and then Proverbs gives us. So if you allow me to read the scripture in a little bit of length, I, I want us to see what it was that Matthew saw, this treasure, as he followed Jesus. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, Paul writes, My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding, in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So what Matthew the tax collector saw, what he valued, his treasure, this knowingness of Jesus, Matthew was able to see the hidden treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He was able to see the hidden treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And it's in Proverbs chapter 3, at length, if we go through those verses that actually speak to us about the power of wisdom, why this treasure in Jesus of wisdom and knowledge was so powerful. Proverbs 3, verse 13 says, Blessed are those who find wisdom, those who gain understanding. For she is more profitable than silver and yields better returns than gold. She is more precious than rubies. Nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are pleasant ways and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her. Those who hold fast will be blessed. By wisdom the Lord laid the earth's foundations. By understanding he set the heavens in place. By his knowledge the watery depths were divided, 
and the clouds let drop the dew. My son, do not let wisdom and understanding out of your sight. Preserve sound judgment and discretion. They will be life for you, an ornament to grace your neck. Then you will go on your way in safety, and your foot will not stumble. When you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your, sl your sleep will be sweet. Have no fear of sudden disaster or of the ruin that overtakes the wicked. For the Lord will be at your side and will keep your foot from being snared. And then in chapter 4, verses 6 to 9 conclude, Do not forsake wisdom, and she will protect you. Love her, and she will watch over you. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. Though it costs all you have, get understanding. Cherish her and she will exalt you. Embrace her, and she will honor you. She will give you a garland to grace your head and present you with a glorious crown. Hallelujah. So it's worth refreshing ourselves on the power of wisdom and how it actually relates to the treasure so when Matthew heard Jesus say that the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, when a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had, and then came and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. It puts into context for us how this accountant, this tax collector, this man whose job it was, was to evaluate the value of possessions. And Matthew understood that when he met Jesus, indeed in knowing Jesus, that knowingness of Jesus was the treasure. It wasn't simply the light. It was the wisdom and the knowledge hidden inside the person of Jesus. And so Matthew gets up, he leaves everything, and he follows. So with all that as our foundation, what then are the leadership perspectives on all of this? Why are we spending our time speaking of treasure and stewarding this treasure and reading Proverbs at length and speaking of wisdom and speaking of knowing Jesus. What does all of this have to do with our abilities to lead? What, what does all of this have to do with leadership? Well, Matthew makes five points, and we're going to look at them now. And I just want to stress again that Matthew makes these points to us from his lived experience. What he did, he was able to leave his job, he was able to leave everything, so Matthew's deed was based on Jesus' words, this promise that the kingdom of heaven is this hidden treasure in a field or underwater, but that's worth everything to the one who can find it. And the fact that Jesus says, gives this message twice, he speaks first of the field and then he speaks of the, the pearl, 
It reminds us of Pharaoh's dream when Joseph was sent to go and interpret Pharaoh's dream. Pharaoh had two dreams. In the one dream, the cattle are lean and they, they, the, the fat cattle get eaten up by the, the lean cattle. And then Pharaoh has another dream of the wheat. And Joseph tells him that you've dreamt these two, but they're the same message. And the reason why God gave it to you twice is because this is sure, this is certain to happen. And so Jesus gives us these two parables back to back, same message about the kingdom of heaven being treasure, because he wants us to know that this is most certain. Jesus is saying to us here, verily, verily. And so let us look at these five points that Matthew shows us here in Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 and 45. Point number one is that the leader is searching. The leader is searching. So as a leader, you will never find this treasure, this treasure of the knowingness of Jesus until you start to look for it. And of course, we know that most precious metals, most precious materials, oil and gas are hidden deep within the earth. When God spoke to Cyrus, he said, I will give you treasures hidden in darkness and hidden riches of secret places. Meaning that the treasure is not on the surface. The treasure is not easy to see. The treasure is not easy to access. And remember a few weeks ago, I can't remember exactly what it was that we were discussing, but we made the point that finding always comes after seeking. You always find something after you've been seeking for it. Maybe you weren't, maybe there's a, a, a time lag, or maybe you were seeking something else. But the point is, is that finding always comes after seeking. So as a leader, are you seeking for the knowingness? Of Jesus? How deeply are you searching for these treasures? How deeply are you looking for the treasure of your stewardship? And what's the connection between stewardship and what we're speaking about today? It's the fact that it's two-way. So it's for us to know what Jesus has done for us, and then for us to reciprocate what we do for Jesus. So this is the stewardship aspect of it. But how deeply are you looking for that? And how much are you investing in that? Because in order to draw out these treasures, these treasures that are hidden deeply, they're not on the surface, they need to be mined. And this is always an expensive enterprise. When you look at the land, you may only find a trace or dust or small pebbles of the treasure. But if you're going to mine the treasure, it's going to take time. It's going to take equipment. You don't just start digging anyhow. You have to strategically survey and assess the land. The mining will take force. Sometimes you have to dig it out. Sometimes you have to flood it out. 
Sometimes you have to blast it out. And so what are you as a leader investing and how deeply are you searching for this treasure, the knowingness of Jesus? And what's interesting about these two parables is that when we read them in the comfort of our modern lives, we might read them very quickly because we think, yeah, if a man finds a treasure in the field, yeah, okay, go come back, get it, buy it, buy the land, get to work. Sure, if the merchant finds the pearl, go buy it. But let us remember that these scripts were written in biblical times. And so the kind of equipment, the kind of technology that we would use today was not in use at that time. There was no dynamite. There were no deep diving wetsuits. And so this helps us to understand the work that is required in now bringing out the treasure. And when we look at ancient times, when we look first at the pearl, what would it take to find a pearl underwater? What I learned when I looked at this is that in those days, in order to pearl hunt, or pearling is what it was called, it was actually a very dangerous activity because men would have to free dive, meaning they had no equipment. You free dive in order to find wild oysters, wild mussels, and these are found down to 100 feet. So you can imagine diving into deep waters down to 100 feet in a single breath and trying to scoop up with your hands, or maybe you would have a, a net or a basket, scoop up as many mussels or oysters as you could before you had to swim back to the surface because you were holding your breath. There were no air tanks in those ancient days. And so the divers were at great risk because they would risk um, sea creatures, other dangerous fish and animals. They would risk the cold waters. And of course, they were risking the pressure of, of diving that deep. Often men drowned. And pearls were very, very rare. It's not like today where we actually farm them or we cultured them. And even as late as the 20th century, on average, it would take one ton, one ton of oysters and mussels to find three to four quality pearls. So pearls were very, very expensive. If we look at the field, how treasures were found in a field, oftentimes merchants would walk along waterways and they would look down at the gravel trying to find traces, dust, or small fragments of the precious stones in order to know that in that vicinity, if they began digging, if they set up pits, they might be able to mine those lands. All of this simply to say that finding a treasure, digging a treasure, mining a treasure would have been very, very expensive. And sometimes we lose the scale of the expense when we read it 
through our modern lenses. And so if I'm asking you a question on this this evening, the question is simply this. For you as a leader, what price are you willing to pay for the knowingness of Jesus? Let's look at the second point. Once he finds it, the leader secures the treasure. So the parables tell us that a treasure is found in a field or in a market. And the man, once he finds it, he hides it again. In other words, he secures that treasure. It's not enough to know that the field exists. It's not enough to know that it's a possibility. It's not even enough to wish that you could have the field. The man, the men in these parables, they secure, they secure the field. The man hides the treasure in the field again, determined to come back for it. The merchant who finds the pearl of great value goes away to come back for it. And so I want to remind us of two weeks ago when we were looking at Solomon, we were speaking on the lineage of stewardship. And one of the points that we made was that Solomon, one of the things that granted him success in his moment of stewardship was the moment at which he determined to take his father's dream and make it his own. The scripture tells us that Solomon determines to build the temple. And it's the same thing here in these parables, that the man doesn't hide the treasure back in the field simply to keep it hidden forever. He secures it so that he can return to it for possession. In other words, he makes a decision and then he follows up that decision with concrete action. So the question that I would ask you this evening is as a leader, have you determined to possess the treasure that God has given you? Do you have a clarity on your giftings and your talents? Do you have a clarity on your assignment? Are you stewarding these things, not simply to get something done for God, but also to go deeper in the knowingness of Jesus? Because this is the treasure. And so for the sake of the unseen treasure within, have you done all to secure it so that you can gather yourself and you can come back to it. The third point is that the leader is joyful. And I think for me, this is the key in this passage. It tells us that the man found this treasure in the field, he hid it, and in his joy, in his joy, in his joy, he goes makes a plan to come back for it. I think it's very telling that Matthew heard that. Matthew heard Jesus say that this is a joyful time. And Matthew himself, we see how joyful he was because he throws Jesus this party. And so the man who finds the treasure is not burdened by the treasure. He doesn't ignore the treasure. He doesn't disbelieve the treasure. He's simply joyful about the treasure and now he determines to possess this treasure and he makes the plan to possess it.
And the reason why I say this is the key, this is the key to the treasure, this is the key in this passage, is that I know that many of us are living, are working, are serving, are obeying, are leading as though we are burdened. And I know that it's hard being a leader for God. It takes a lot of time. Sometimes there's disappointment. But there is a joy that is set before you. And the reason why we need to cling to this is because we must never forget that we follow in the footsteps of our master. Jesus, who did not despise the cross, but went towards it. Why? For the joy set before him. That's what the scripture says. And so we must also lead, even in difficulty, even in disappointment, even under pressure, even in loneliness. We are to lead joyfully. We are to steward this treasure of this knowingness of Jesus joyfully for the joy set before us. We are to remember that we are to offer the sacrifice of joy. It's in one of the Psalms somewhere. If you read it too quickly, you'll miss it, but it's in the Bible that joy is a sacrifice. And so the question for you as a leader, are you stewarding this treasure joyfully? Even though it's going to take a lot of equipment and a lot of digging and a lot of blasting to draw it out, to mine it out. It's going to take a lot of time. Are you joyful for the joy set before you? Point number four. Probably the most obvious of the points. The leader sells all he has to possess this treasure. And so this answers the earlier question that we asked. I asked you, what are you willing to pay to possess this treasure of knowing Jesus, this treasure of the knowingness of Jesus? What are you willing to pay? The parable here tells us that both men, the man in the field and the merchant with the pearl, they sold it all. They sold it all. They didn't sell half. They didn't sell 80%. They sold 100%. We see Ananias and Sapphira who did not sell it all. And we know their end. And so here Jesus is actually not secretive about us, about this at all. He tells us up front the cost of being a disciple, the cost of leading in his name. He tells us over and over. Jesus says, foxes have holes, the birds have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. He says, let the dead bury the dead, but as for you, go and preach the gospel. He says, don't take your hand off the plow once you've started, or you'll be found unworthy of the work. He says, pick up your cross daily and walk. Don't just stand there. Don't just carry the cross. Pick it up. The cross is not a briefcase. The cross is not a mobile phone, pick up the cross that's heavy and unwieldy and walk with it. Jesus says, can you drink from the cup that I drink from? 
So he's laying out the cost for us. And in fact, if we go back to Luke where we were last week, if we look at chapter 14, verses 26 down, Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Hallelujah. And the reason why it's interesting for us to read that in its length is because following this statement come the three parables that we looked at last week, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. So Jesus says very clearly, the one who doesn't give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. It couldn't be more plain. And so, I don't, I don't need to ask you the question because Jesus has asked you already as a leader, what are you willing to give up for the knowingness of Jesus, the light of knowing the knowledge of God's glory? And now I understand when Moses asks God and he says, God, show me your glory. Moses actually could ask that because Moses had paid a steep price in advance. He had fled his upbringing, fled Egypt. He had no family. He had no natural family, no adoptive family, no friends left. He had been in the wilderness for 40 years. Moses had paid a steep price. And so he was able to ask to know this glory because he'd given something up. He'd given everything up. And so as a leader in Christ, what are you willing to give up for the knowingness of Jesus? And then the final point, very, very short. The leader possesses it. The scripture tells us that the man goes back to the field and buys it. The scripture tells us that the merchant goes back and he buys the pearl. They possess it. They become the owners of this great treasure. So they achieve success. They achieve 
achievements, they achieve accomplishment. And that's done through these actions of seeking, finding, determining, giving up everything in order to possess it. And so as we close this evening, this is what Matthew, the tax collector, knew. Matthew gave up everything to know the treasure of Jesus. So as a leader, are you even searching for this treasure? What will you decide when you find traces of this treasure on the land of your promise? Will you secure it so that you can come back and possess it? Or will you simply look at the land longingly, wishfully, acknowledging that exists, but not maybe being ready to purchase it? As a leader, will you be joyful or will you be burdened by the weight of this treasure? Have you offered the sacrifice of joy? As a leader, what are you willing to give up for it? The one who gives up half doesn't get it. It's only the one who surrenders it all. And so I pray for us this evening. I pray that as leaders under Christ, we would be continuously seeking for this great treasure, this knowingness of Jesus, knowing the light of his glory, seeking for his wisdom and his knowledge that is hidden within him. I pray that once we think we found it, that we would determine to have it at all costs, that that determination would be a source of joy for us, that we wouldn't think of the cost, we wouldn't think of the expense of having to now do the difficult work of mining it out, that we would confidently and joyfully and faithfully surrender everything just to steward this treasure. Hallelujah.